0: Hi, it's Noah Becker. Um, I've been having some guest hosts on the White Hot Podcast. And today, Mike Mazels is the guest host. He is a PhD, Mike Mazels' PhD. Uh, he's an art historian and a theorist whose work brings the visual arts into productive collision with a broad range of disciplinary histories and potential futures. He's the author of four books, the most recent of which analyzes the history of post-war American art through the lens of business model evolution. has also published widely on topics ranging from musicology and tax law to the philosophy of mathematics. And as a guest host, Mike is bringing in David Joslet, a distinguished art historian and curator and is currently the chair of the Department of Art, Film and Visual Studies at Harvard University. David is an editor at October and has published widely on contemporary art media and politics. In 2021, his volume, Heritage and Debt, won the Robert Motherwell Award, one of the top prizes in modern art history. In 2023, David published a follow-up, Arts Properties, with Princeton University Press. Arts Properties, the subject of this podcast today, reconsiders how methodologies from global contemporary art can allow us to rethink the intra-European development of modernism. So this should be an interesting conversation here on the White Hot Magazine Art World podcast. My name is Noah Becker. Enjoy the guest host.
1: Okay. excellent. so I'm Mike Mizels. I'm an art historian and researcher, uh, periodic contributor to White Hot Magazine, and delighted to have uh, on this interview today, uh, David Joslet, who is the um, chair of the uh, Visual uh, Department, Visual Art Department studies. I'm going to mess up the name of the title, so I'm going to let uh, my colleague introduce himself at Harvard University. Has uh, published a wonderful uh, short book called Arts Properties uh, that we're going to dive into. But before I do, I'll let uh, my colleague introduce himself uh, and his work very briefly.
2: Hi. Yeah, I'm thanks, Mike. Um... I'm David Joslet, and as you mentioned, I'm chair now of um, the Art, Film, and Visual Studies Department at Harvard, uh, trained as an art historian, and but interested in moving my work uh, toward a more visual studies and even politically oriented place through study of the art.
1: Excellent. So uh, you've just recently published uh, this small book. It's in some ways a follow- up uh, to your longer Heritage and Debt uh, that was a uh, Motherwell award winner. So I guess I would love to learn a little more about the uh, genesis of that book, both uh, in terms of seminar uh, that I was reading about in the back at Harvard as well as um, some of your previous uh, you know uh, research investigations.
2: Uh-huh. Um, well, the book Heritage and Debt you mentioned was an effort to really think about globalization. Um, and art's place in it. So there were a number of issues that came up um, about um, locations in the global South, uh, like, for instance, the role of museums as generators of gentrification and um, wealth production. Also, I noted that um, many museums outside the West began to be developed um, when um, their host countries, such as the Emirates or Singapore, et cetera, were moving from a manufacturing base to a knowledge base. So I began to think about how museums really um, enter into a certain kind of economic phase um, outside the West. And it made me start to think, you know, how do some of these ideas really apply to the history that I was trained in, the Western history of art um, and modernism broadly, um, defined as from the 18th century or even late 17th century to the present. Um, so this book was an effort to really think um, about cultural property um, by importing certain models, such as the restitution debates of cultural properties that have largely come from the global South and directed toward the North, um, to try to think of them as an intra-European or intra-Western dynamic.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. So just you were speaking a minute ago about transition from call it, you know, means of production to means of knowledge production or something along those lines and the the introduction to arts properties has this very heady um, kind of ping pong back and forth across like the museum is strong box and then the um, kind of, you know, subtext analogy of AI and the black box and you know the uh the physical search engine was another one of these analogies and yeah I guess Mm -hmm. I would be keen to hear you riff on uh those kind of same motifs as a uh you know audio version uh you know introduction uh you know to some of the issues that you raise in the book.
2: Yeah um the the um the book is really about different ways that art figures as property and um I introduce and I try to make a genealogy from the beginning of museums with the opening beginning of public museums um with the opening of the louvre in paris um but the the um prologue that you mentioned is really about a contemporary practice of taking photographs in museums um on the one hand and how you know i've noticed as someone who goes to museums often that people tend to Snap their photo, and then move on as though that were the act of looking, so the identification between photographing and looking was of interest to me, and I began to think of it as a way of storing up the property of experiencing work of art for some later date, you know, which may never come um and I thought about that as a form of of um sort of individual curation and capture, which is after all what the museum is supposed to do and um I joined this to a kind of um, new model at the museum that really interests me, which is the um, it's not, it's not actually brand new, but it's exploded in recent years. And that is the, the kind of um, practice and fantasy of open storage where museums, it's a kind of um, gesturing toward democracy where museums display the kind of accumulation of their um of their collection of course they don't let you wander through and um you know rifle through objects themselves but they behind glass often they show um they show the kind of storerooms in different kinds of ways and there's this museum um the uh in Rotterdam the Boijmans Van Boynigen Museum that in fact has made um a building where they display their entire storage. Um, And the idea is very much like the people taking photographs in museums, is that you move into the museum, you go to visit the museum, but there's no kind of curatorial intervention, or at least that's the idea, that there aren't, you know, conventional exhibitions, but rather you use your phone to access various works that are on view through glass, or in some cases are on walls. And then you also see the kind of spectacle Of care for art and the spectacle of um, art infrastructure, because when you enter into the lobby, you can actually see the loading dock and people loading, um, you know, putting art into crates and then sending it off if it's being uh, lent to other institutions, things like that. So the strong box comes from there are a number of these private museums that are basically Various forms of open storage or or storage based museums. The Broad Museum in Los Angeles, the Schaulager in Basel, are two kind of prominent examples. And then this this um, this museum in Rotterdam is or it's called a Depot. Um, beside the museum itself is in fact not well. It began as a private collector's museum, but it's not a private museum in the sense that the Broad or the Schaulager are.
1: Very interesting. Um, there's any number of directions that we could take this. I mean, even the whole crux of curation and content, content discovery within platforms is like one discourse that I, I fear will pull us off track. So I will voluntarily. Yeah. Just- not talk about that but we can save the save the option to circle back to it um but you mentioned this um you know idea of like taking this the the museum selfie or something like that right and we could take this again a bunch of different directions think about you know climate protest right and all kinds of speed gallery performance um and i'm of course not the first person to observe this but this you know, as a part of a long tradition, right, of photographing oneself in front of monuments on a grand tour that would trace back, you know, to, you know, to the, to the ways that you might define modernism in an 18th century kind of mode, um, which takes us sort of into the first chapter of your book, uh, to think about, um, the idea of sort of dispossessed intra-European property. I really like the way that you, you framed that as thinking about this as sort of like, post-colonial, but within continental Europe, you know, sort of approach to this, I thought it was a a really nice turn, and I, yeah, I would, again, love to have you uh, sort of tell the readers about um, your thoughts about Napoleon.
2: Yeah, well, Napoleon, you know, was apparently not interested in art from an aesthetic point of view, but was very interested in it as um, an icon, uh, as a medium of power, um, as it had been used, of course, through um, throughout the history of, of European monarchs, and especially by Louis XIV, the, the kind of great um you know uh, creator of an image of power um through Versailles, etc. Um, so Napoleon, you know, during the revolution, um, the French Revolution, when the Louvre was was um opened and founded, um, there was um a specific kind of intra French. Um, appropriation of objects um, from the Ancien Régime, meaning the aristocracy and um, the clergy who had been the patrons and owners of works of art. And they had been actually taken away from those families largely and put into a depot like the depots I mentioned more recently. And in fact, that became a museum of French history um, where chronology and different eras of art um, were innovated as means of showing works. Now we think now that that's the most natural possible way of seeing something in a museum. You look at different eras, etc. But if you think about it, before the the moment of the museum as a historical structure, um, all those works of art were spread between private, you know princely or arist- aristocratic collections or in church ensembles where they certainly were not chronological. Ritualistic
1: ways, whether those were yeah.
2: rituals or
1: clerical rituals, you know, they were in a in European situation, which is, I think, the power of that kind of comparison that you're making.
2: Right. So that was happening. But then once Napoleon um, took over, he, um, as part of his military expeditions, he very self-consciously brought along with him art experts and, and, um, took works of art from other European, um, countries or, um, territories through his, um, in, in his military campaigns in a very self-conscious way of bringing together, um, a collection that would, um, you know, make France the kind of symbolic and cultural center of the world. And what's quite interesting is that the what I learned in, in doing this project is that the restitution claims that we associate with, again, largely now with African or um or other non-Western objects being claimed by their source cultures um, from European museums. There was almost immediately after Napoleon's fall, um, efforts across Europe to have these works returned that he had appropriated. So, um, the sort of celebrity sculptor Canova, for instance, who was, who actually even did work for Napoleon's family was sent by the Pope to try to recover some Italian works that were, um, had been taken to French muse, to Paris. So the whole idea, of both owning and appropriating culture, um, really is contemporaneous with the rise of the museum. That's that's kind of one of the main points of the book, that the museum, in a sense, is an apparatus for transforming culture into property. Um, and that's one's own culture, as well as that of others.
1: Um outstanding I was meaning to return back to the because t- the idea of property and properties is something that you play with very elegantly um the course of the book but again to keep us kind of moving through the book as written and then we sort of like open it up as we uh as we end artist property and then artist intellectual property um is a way of thinking about modernism as such and the construct of the artist being the sort of the, the mind in which um you know these things issue forth I've you know written about this myself and again yeah. I would love to you know hear your uh, you know, redux on this, and then kind of you know riff about um, you know some of the interrelationships certainly between copyright law and conceptual art um, that I find extremely uh, heady and interesting to think about.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed reading your chapbook um, on on this very issue. Um, well, the book is tries to establish um, a parallelism between this idea that the museum is a kind of apparatus for making property out of um, cultural artifacts. But at the same time, during the same period, there was this um, rather slow, but also consistent, um, I don't want to say effort, because it wasn't really um, a kind of coordinated effort, but a sort of historical unfolding of claims of rights on the part of authors, artists, and writers. It begins really with writers but then moves to artists in interesting and complex ways to claim their work as property as intellectual property as you mentioned but what is the um the kind of double entendre of the title arts properties has to do with both the becoming property um of artworks both through museums and through their um, through the claims of, of authors of artists, but also the idea of properties in the plural as being qualities—the um, properties of an artist. What makes, uh, you know, uh, a painting by Manet a Manet? You know, those are his qualities, his properties as an artist, and so interestingly those properties that intellectual property was being um formed at the same time as the cultural properties were and and of course they converge because the museum becomes the site where um you know the artist's property is um appropriated as cultural property this is
1: the uh I don't remember the exact turn of phrase, but the, the critical industrial apparatus that you, uh, was discussed in there, the turn from the academic system into something that was sort of critic and market validated. And then again, yeah. the idea of imprint and you know, sort of technological reproduction. Um, again, there's you know endless, um, endless ways of uh, sort of like deconstructing that. I do sort of want to return to um, sort of positions of power and impositions of power in relationship mm-hmm. to the construct of the Adrian Piper discussion um from the book. Um, there's a, a question that's like sort of on the tip of my tongue about agency and digital eras, but I think I'll just say that till, till the very end. Um, yeah. And I guess ask you to um, sort of, uh, you know, if we're thinking about the genesis of this, you know, kind of um, expressed perhaps most fully in this romantic idea of the authorial singularity. Here I am, I wrote this thing, it should be mine. And, you know, like, if this thing makes money with its movie rights, the money should be, you know, belong to my grandchildren. The same way if I clear cut the forest, you know, I'm thought of the idea for the clear forest, you know, here it is to the generations um, in the 19th century, and then sort of turned on its head by Robert Berry and Adrian Piper, and kind of complementarily interesting ways and would again love to have that um sort of discussed uh, by you for our listeners.
2: Yeah. So a third um if if we take property as an issue that's um with different um kind of streams mm-hmm. in the book that are braided together. Um there as as we've discussed there is the idea of the museum as 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 a kind of apparatus for making cultural property, um, the intellectual property of the artist and the third one really has to do with um, the, on the one hand, how human labor becomes property in the system of slavery in in the 19th century, which becomes you know an you know an engine for European and certainly North American development and modernity in ways that many scholars have been you know mining really productively in recent years but also the native american story within the united states but it's a colonial story where um where um property is appropriated through the um annihilation of off, of of property rights held by the so-called primitive or bar- barbarian people that they did not improve their land and therefore they can't claim it as property so this is the kind of third meaning of property um, in the book. And what I argue is that um, just sort of going to the most basic definition, and you've been to business school unlike me, but um, that property is both a a cluster of rights in something, rights of use, exclusive rights often, um, but not always, but it's also a form of liability. You know, you are liable for um, the harms that Are created through your property, and um, so I talk about how, on the one hand, the property in oneself that an artist has can be a great asset, but um, but through these, um, basically, the system of white supremacy um, that the combination of colonial suppression and um, and and enslavement in the um, eighteenth and nineteenth century and before. Um, result in a kind of property as liability. And what I mean by that is that, you know, traditionally and still often, um, Blackness, for instance, is a kind of liability um, for an artist who has to, who historically until, you know, relatively recently, really, maybe one could say, and of course this it, it hasn't been um, annihilated entirely, but, um, that one has to represent that the burden of representation as Copen Mercer has it, um, among artists who are marked by their identity is to make art around that identity. And yet, um, then that work is judged as lesser because it's about a particularity and not appealing to kind of universal values. So the, what you're referring to is, um, I talk about this in terms of conceptual art where which is basically the I mean to put it in a tiny nutshell um conceptual art um transfers art's value into a kind of intellectual property almost exclusively or that's the kind of horizon of a possibility and what um what Adrian Piper does in a series of works that are you know totally involved with conceptual art but often not included canonically with him she being an african-american woman um is she made a set of works where she was she um entered into public space in a kind of degraded disgusting way by you know having something stuffed in her mouth or by by smelling or having um a recording of of um farting in one case in the library and so what she's done is not performed her possession of her intellectual property but almost her dispossession from it by placing herself in the world in a way that um the art the value of the art is out of her control it's really as she thinks of it it's really in the eye of the beholder and also from the commodity standpoint these works of art are represented only by um modest photographs that you know have been have entered museums I don't know if they've been bought and sold but you know they they certainly have a market value at this stage but she's what I'm arguing is that instead of um asserting her intellectual property which would be a conventional conceptual strategy she is um asserting her dispossession from that property
1: great um and then to sort of uh bring us to at least close to the conclusion. Um, this question of uh, the burden of representation, right, is something that you um, that you just you know described, and that uh, is not quite. Yeah, you know, that is in fact the, the second to last title, right? So the relationships between uh, burdens of representations, property as liability enters into this, but in some ways, like you know, I, I don't want to sort of spoil the punchline here, but thinking about data shots, right, and thinking about the obligation to or not engage with certain kinds of things and certain you know uh, kinds of ways, and then compared to the the um, sort of more hopeful uh, framework of witnessing rather than representing. Uh, yeah, I would love to have you um, you know expound on those themes.
2: Yeah. So the um, the kind of second half of the book, which as you mentioned is quite short, it's a it's an essay um, an essay book um, is. A very careful reading of a controversy that happened some years ago at the at the Whitney Museum in one of their biennial exhibitions, where um, the white American painter Dana Schutz um, exhibited a work of um, Emmett Till, who was the young black uh, black young man. Um, I think he was fifteen when he was murdered, who was accused of um, looking askance or flirting with a white woman and then he was lynched and and horribly disfigured and his mother Mamie Till Mobley um brought had his body brought back from the south where he was visiting relatives when this happened they lived in Chicago and um she had a funeral for him with an open casket and the body was just a horror to look at I mean really Almost unbearable to see and um but she very um, i think courageously and very very intelligently um, attempted to manage the image of her son. Um, I think what she did was she wanted the image of his murder to be set into a context of black life as opposed to um, just. Black death, you know, that Black experience equals Black death. So the controversy had to do with with Dana Schutz taking this photograph, which she transposed into a painting, and there was um, a kind of zero-sum debate around it, where a number of African-American intellectuals and others um, argued that Dana Schutz had no right to appropriate Black pain. And then um, a number of artists and um, and white people, but also some people of color, argued that the artist has the right to appropriate whatever she wants. And so basically what happened here was that there was an absolute proprietary um, impasse because on the one hand, um, one side was saying that black pain is only the property of black people. And the other side was saying that white people or artists can have everything. Um, and in 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 effect, um what I'm trying to say is that this kind of zero-sum game where pain or identity is a form of property to which one has exclusive rights will ultimately lead to a kind of world of balkanization that, you know, I think, well, we're living in politically now and it doesn't really work very well so what i tried to argue through working through the entire um set of arguments around this but more importantly to me by really thinking about by analyzing the painting itself is what what how can we adjudicate this by actually thinking through the work of art itself um and so the question is um not that one has the right to everything or one doesn't have the right to any identity to which one doesn't belong, but rather one has a responsibility to bear witness to what they are appropriating. And I make a distinction between an owner and a witness. A witness um, gives testimony that's not a product, and that testimony is judged in a court of law or elsewhere for its truth or validity. Um, and so ultimately what I argue by thinking carefully and precisely about the form of the painting is that Dana Schutz has has given us a kind of intimacy into this horror. She's kind of prettied up um, the horror of Emmett Till's um, death and allowed people to kind of peer into the coffin, as it were, in a way that precisely was not possible In the actual event itself. So what I argue is that it's not so much that a white person is appropriating black pain, which one could argue that I'm wrong about this, certainly, but rather that that appropriation is done in a way that is ethically problematic in that it allows for a kind of um, obscene intimacy with something that whose horror really demands and even compels a kind of respect and distance um, that the painter didn't allow for.
1: I think that's very fair. Um, and so I guess, you know, like, a whirlwind, um, tour from, you know, the Louvre through the the Whitney, right, and the controversies around, uh, who is in possession of, uh, what to be able to say what about whom, and I guess, um, you know, uh, the, the book kind of, I'll say, ends before COVID. I mean, it was written more recently than that, but that being sort of, like, Most recent episode. And in the wake of many things that have happened in the planet Earth, the pandemic, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, you know, a lot of different things, different kinds of discourses around museums and community belonging, I guess I would be curious to hear your sense of, you know, where some of these questions are going where how you think interesting artists are tackling these kinds of questions going forward, progressive, you know, institutional policies. Um, yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I'd love to sort of hear you, you hypothetically extend some of the arguments of this book, you know, uh, into the second half, first half of this decade.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, I do talk about one artist, um, uh, a work that was made after, oh wait, was it? maybe not. Anyway, I talk about Cameron Rowland, um, who is one strategy is his, which is, um, in some cases he refuses to allow his work to become property at all. Um, and, um, by making arrangements with, um, collectors to rent works, often with, um, components that are kind of ready-mates that are all rent already rented by the artist. So he one way of thinking about this is to reorient um the um relation to property that is assumed within artworks. Um I have been interested since the book um in artists who are really kind of um to use a term that Donna Haraway has used not too long ago, the um, critical theorist, I don't know even how to define her, but um, is staying with the trouble. In other words, there's a way in which um, instead of getting out of the situation you're in, let's say, Trumpism, for an example of a political one, to maintain some contact or relation with the flow of events um in order to divert them from within, to analyze them there, to ethically prescribe, as opposed to taking a position that's outside somehow. And um so I've been really interested in the work of Precious Okoyuman, who makes gardens. Um, she, at the end of... The Venice Biennale, the last art one, which was, I guess, a year ago and some change or a year ago, um, she made a garden that included um, plants that are um, that make reference to um, plantation agriculture, but also to plants that are invasive species. Um, so there's a kind of cultivation um and memory um, that's going on. So I think what's important is bringing memory into the present and the element of care on some level. Um, that, what interests me about a practice like that is that the work of art only exists through its being cared for. In a weird way, that's similar to Cameron Rowland's work in the sense that um, you know you have to keep paying for it. I mean, that's that's a certain kind of care, um, but, uh, yeah, I'll yeah. stop there.
1: I think we could, you know, riff too on, you know, just rent, uh, fractionalization of property rights in the way that you're talking about. Is that a strategy of reinscribing power relationship or not? Um, yeah. have you know, sort of one more, uh, you know, question to think about the argument of the book, just that if, you know, I really love this idea of, you know, cultivation, right? I mean, it's, it's similar in some ways to Theaster Gates, mm-hmm. who I've, you know, also written about you know, a little bit of dialogue with you. Um... Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to kind of then return all the way back to the very beginning of the book and the museum is a site of knowledge production, right? Cultural heritage preservation and how you envision the practice of museology like whatever that word might mean in 2023 um, will have to adjust itself forward around both some of the debates around you know inclusive belonging that we're talking about, as well as work that in its very nature challenges the idea of going into a storage depot. I mean, like a garden in a storage depot, by definition, is sort of like a contradiction in terms. And it would just to, to throw something out there to see if this is like sparks anything for you. One of the things, having you know, spent some of my career in museums that I found to be Vexed in a way that I could never put my finger on until I began thinking more about the sort of museums and modernity argument. You talked a little bit about like collections ordering right and the ways that the collection of of an art museum is patterned on the slightly earlier birth of the science museum right, so this Mm -hmm. idea of specimens and speciation and, and those kinds of things and it struck me that the museum, the art museum, is in this double bind where the science museum, it's basically, to, you know, I haven't argument in a very, very simple way. It's very easy to tell if you're at the Boston Children's Science Museum or at like the Large Hadron Collider. You can tell where science is being done and where science mm-hmm. is being explained to the public, and there's no possible way to confuse which one of those two things that you're at, right? The art museum seems insistent on trying to do both of those things at the same time and frequently finding itself tripping over its feet, attempting to do both, right? To be both the site of genuinely new cultural discourse and new ways of thinking about the future, present, and past, and to be the site of inclusive knowledge, digestion, and belonging, and all of those other kinds of functions, right? Communitarian functions, and how the museum ought to think about those two vectors. This was a non-problem until somewhat recent I mean it was a problem until somewhat recently but it was not seen not understood as a non-problem until somewhat recently and now it feels um as though there are different uh the vectors are in some ways at cross purposes for thinking about the the sort of future trajectory of this institution and I would love um, to hear your thoughts about that
2: yeah yeah um it's complicated because um you know I think that um I've always felt both sympathetic and uncomfortable with um, the decolonize the museum activism and also targeting of certain trustees um, because I feel like there's a way in which, you know, I mean, what I guess I try to argue in this book is that the museum is constitutively a colonial institution. And so Mm -hmm. it really can't be decolonized unless, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, just abolished, yeah. and so, and you know, I personally would rather that they not be abolished, but I think that um I think that there are ways for me it is really using the collection I mm-hmm. think that that's what 's very interesting about um museums in many cases um, that the collection is a kind of material form of history that can be mined and excavated um in a variety of ways. And I just was at the Met in New York, um, to see the Wanda Pareda show, um, the Afro Hispanic artist who had been, um, enslaved to Velazquez, um, and then became himself had, was manumitted by, um, Velazquez after a certain period of time. And then, um, and, you know, became a, a pretty, successful well-known painter whose history paintings are um in the Prado, you know, next to Velasquez, I don't know if literally next to Velasquez but in the same collection. And I think that the Met has been trying in some ways to kind of the the show in some ways was inspired by the fact that they own this very famous portrait of um Pareda, the Afro-Hispanic artist. Um, that is by Velasquez and so in a sense what they were doing was excavating their collection um, through thinking about what this what the kind of um, discursive and aesthetic field um, was that that this work came from and that seems to me um, a really important thing for museums to do and and has to do with collecting. I'll give two answers, two more answers, just very briefly. I've been having conversations with some people about um, climate crisis in museums, and it's interesting that um, a number of institutions, including MoMA and the Tate, are attempting to reduce their carbon footprint by changing their practices in terms of storage, etc. I was just talking the other day by zoom to Francis Morris, who's the former director of tape modern. And, um, you know, she was saying, you know, she really thinks that the whole idea of collecting will have to be thought through from, through the challenges of maintaining these giant expensive collections and what the kind of cost is environmentally and also financially, um, And then my answer to the museum is always a very simple one. I think, and in a way, this is already true in Europe, so it may be specious on my part, but I think museums should be free. And I think that, you know, many European museums are free and then you have to pay to go into special exhibitions. I think that would be a great innovation in the United States. And I think that what would happen is that the audience would be different and the museum would have to accommodate the audience, and it there would be change from below and not below sounds judgmental and moralizing. There would be change from a different composition of audience as opposed to attempting to make change by picking off the most egregious mm. you know trustees when frankly you know it's the system that yeah. you know the system of museums being. Funded and directed by, um, you know, by billionaires and hundred millionaires, whatever they're called, um, you know, with their own vested interests. Um, It's not going to be undermined, I think, by picking off one or two, but I may be wrong about that.
1: Good uh, note to end on. Uh, one of the things that I, you know, just sort of throw out there is, a, is an interest of mine and just, um, yeah, uh, while we're talking about all of this, uh, uh, open storage, open collections, right? The the performance of open storage to me seems extraordinarily different than a kind of ethic of disclosure around some of these kind yeah. of vexed of patronage, right? So while museums are starting to put the paintings, you know, in crates that are plexiglass that you can see in public, you're not, none of them are putting their object files, in, right? None of them are putting the financial records connected to the acquisitions for, right? Yeah. You know, I just myself recently published a book in this general domain um, and started a spin-off project that was titled um, No Scholarly Value as a Bit of Frustration um, for the number of times that I had asked museums to see receipts for all intents and purposes and was told, you know, as financial documents, they hold no scholarly value. Um, so I think uh, one of the things that's exciting for me uh, in your book is thinking about this idea of like recontextualization, right? You know, showing the work as it could have se- been seen, you know, from a different perspective, like the Fred Wilson, you know, school of, um, yeah. sort of like, curatorial intervention. I love Fred. It was freaking amazing. It's to me like a high level, uh, you know, like uh, sign of respect. Um, and I think that that uh, recontextualization impulse in the best possible way will could dovetail with the ethic of open collections, and then digitized collections, right? What kinds of things can be known about the networks that these things moved through, if all of the amount of information that is currently buried in paper files were able to be, you know, shared with the public in some kind of organized way? Um, I think there's reason to be uh, excited about what the museum as the producer of cultural knowledge, you know, has to hold in the future.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. and And I do think open storage is a kind of performative kind of transparency but maybe you're right maybe you know it will be the beginning of you know a consciousness of greater transparency and you know now that metadata you know the thing about the rotterdam depot that's sort of interesting is that it's all activated by your phone and of course the metadata is now digitized so you know in theory more of this information could be made accessible
1: Mm -hmm. i agree Fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and thank you to our listeners as well. And uh, yeah, thank you all so much.
2: Thank you.